Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Whining About Herstory, a podcast where two longtime gal pals swap stories about women in history that you may not have heard of and drink a lot of wine while doing it. I'm Kelly. I'm Emily. And we are pairing some fine ladies with some fine ass wine today. Yeah, we are. Um, to talk about the wine in the way that we do. That's gross. I don't know what that is. <laughs> Sorry, some mysterious substance is currently on the back of my cell phone and I don't. That's concerning. Um, Has your husband been using your cell phone? No. Okay. <laughs> so we are drinking cupcake, or from the cupcake vineyards, rather, uh, Sauvign- Sauvignon Blanc, a 2017. Um, the description for this wine is as follows. This vibrant and complex burst with flavors of key lime, white nectarines, grapefruit, and gooseberry, leaving a well-balanced finish. It was six ninety nine at Costco. Oh yeah, I can, t- right I can totally taste right. the grapefruit in it, here's, but it's it's very it's a very good wine. Here's the funny thing: we opened the bottle and we smelled it because we we're trying to pretend like we know about wine. And Kelly immediately was like, "I smell grapefruit." And I'm like, "I get that too." So hearing that's actually in the description, I'm like, "Oh my god, look at us whining!" Yeah, we got something right. But it's, wine queens in it's, training for a white. It's very dry, but it's it's very sweet. It's a good summer wine. Which, you know, is on par with Minnesota currently having its second winter where it's April and it just fucking snowed again. Yep. We had a pretty good full spring and now we're yeah, in second we like winter. four days. Things were starting to bloom. And then it snowed. Yep. As uh, Okay. Here's the thing. It did not just fucking snow. It snowed. It iced. It rained. It was windy. It was like a mini blizzard. Like, I think they were actually calling it a blizzard. And then we had dust from Texas actually come up here so all the snow is like tinted kind of pinkish brown yeah it's kind of gross this is minnesota our weather is so fucked up and it's insane and, <laughs> and why we get we texas why do we live here <laughs> i don't fucking know because we were born here well, we didn't choose this <laughs> my parents moved here so i get to blame them for everything <laughs> anyway we're gonna cheers to this sweet ass wine i'm uh drinking out of the pug boat today because i'd rather be on a boat right now um i'm drinking out of pug shot just because it's really cute it is really it, it cute t- it's tongue sticking out you know getting its mug shot taken that pug is super excited about the person it know, just it's murdered. like yeah <laughs> <laughs> what are we cheersing to today mm, i don't know you know what? Let's cheers to the weekend. I've had a really good Saturday. I've been productive slash taking care of myself mentally. And uh, I think it's something worth cheersing to. And I we get to record. So heck yeah. Cheers. Self-care day. Self-care day. <laughs> Clink. I'm a big fan. I like this. I am too. It is very strong like grapefruit. So if you don't like grapefruit, I probably wouldn't recommend it. But for anyone who is either neutral or likes grapefruit... Pick it up. It's real good. I also want to know what the cupcake vineyard looks like. Like, immediately I'm imagining a bunch of vineyards with, like, cupcakes growing off the vines. It's a product of New Zealand. Oh, crap. Really? So, yeah. It says, our vineyard works hard to bring you the zestiest, most refreshing refreshing Sauvignon Blanc from the cool Marlboro Valley. Here, the grapes mature slowly, giving them complexity and a vibrant zing, reminiscent of the lemon chiffon cupcake. 
The aromas are integrated, delighting the senses with flavors of Meyer lemons, key limes, and a finish that awakens the appetite. Served chilled with oysters on the half shell or with a rich, creamy lobster risotto. Oh, my God. I feel like we aren't fancy enough to drink this wine now. <laughs> I'm not I'm not big on, like, fish, so I probably wouldn't eat either of those things. Or That's seafood. right. That's right. Kelly is single-handedly trying to take down Red Lobster. Except for the biscuits. Although mine are better, so. This is true. Yeah, I'm single-handedly trying to take down the Red Lobster. Yeah, she's going to open her own Red Lobster, and it's going to call be called Kelly's Biscuits, and it's just going to be Red Lobster Biscuits, but better. Yeah. Yes. The key is more butter. Always more butter. (laughs) All the butter. So Kelly's going to start us off today, but before we get started, we are premiering our new segment called Say Their Name, where we're just basically giving props to other badass people in the world. And uh, this week featured on Say Their Name, special shout out to Gabrielle Diaz. You can find them at at Gabby Diaz Ortiz. G-A-B-Y-D-I-A-Z-O-R-T-I-Z. They are an amazing artist who is currently working on writing and illustrating a book about Artemisia Gentileschi, who we covered in, I think it was episode four? Something like that. Whichever one starts off with, who paints Michelangelo's ceiling? Because it's Artemisia, bitches. (laughs) It's fucking Artemisia. Um, So the book will explore her life, works, and legacy. And I don't have a publication date yet because it's still a work in progress. Yes, and she is hand doing it all. At least like the first copy. So it might be a little while, but definitely follow her and, you know, keep updated. She's got some incredible illustrations. Yeah, it's going to be badass. I love her shit. So anyway, uh, you can check her on Instagram and we'll keep you updated on when that book premieres. So. That's our Say Their Name for the week. Yay. All right. So now Kelly can jump into her badass <laughs> babe. can jump into my badass babe. All right. Today I am doing Paulina Luisi, which is a super like pronounceable name and I'm really happy about it, but like it's from a, it's from Uruguay. So I was like, I'm surprised this is super pronounceable. No offense, Uruguay, but like I know there's a language difference. We struggle with pronunciations, and we really try our best because here's the thing. If we can figure out Dovsieski and Tchaikovsky, like, we should be able to figure yeah. out these women's names, but Kelly and I... <laughs> we struggle. We're doing our best. Uh, and I'm I'm just going to start doing this before each of my things. I'm I'm going to apologize in advance if I screw names up instead of apologizing when I do it. So I'm just going to rock through this and i'm sorry if i screw up let's be honest you're totally going to apologize as you Probably. like pronounce a name syllables by syllable because i do the same thing so i'm going to give an overview and then i'll get into the you know nitty-gritty details so paulina luisi was the leader of the feminist movement in the country of uruguay in 1909 she became the first uruguayan woman to earn a medical degree She was highly respected, and she represented Uruguay in international women's conferences and traveled throughout Europe. She voiced her opinions on women's rights, and in 1919, Paulina started a force for women's rights in Uruguay. By 1922, the Pan-American Conference of Women named Paulina Luisi an honorary vice president of the meeting, and she continued to be an activist until Uruguay women were given the right to vote. So that's the overview. 
I think this is the first woman we've covered who is specifically fighting for women's rights. I mean, Olympe de Gouge fought for yeah, women's I think, rights. I think we but... had some women that were like, oh, she did something else and she fought for women's rights. But this is, she did something, but then she primarily fought for women's rights. Okay. I'm really excited. Yeah. It sounds pretty sweet. Paulina uh, was born in Argentina in 1875. Her mother was Maria Teresa Josefina Janicki. And she was of Polish descent. And her father... Oh, Poland! Yeah. I'm 50% Polish! <laughs> and her father, Angel Luisi, was believed to have come from an Italian ancestry. Um, she was the eldest of eight children, seven of whom were girls. She was not the only Luisi sister to break new ground for Uruguayan women. Her sister, Clotilde, became the first female lawyer in the country in 1911, while Ines became a physician and Louisa became a well-known poet. So she's not the only woman in her family. She just, you know, seems to be the most famous. Do you think that family reunions, they just get together and, like, have pissing contests? Well, I just published an anthology of my poetry and I was honored by the government. Well, I just won a very significant groundbreaking case that sets the precedent for women's rights for right? the next like, 10 years. They're probably all just like... <laughs> they're all just like whipping out their dicks yeah, and like oh look what i've done in the past year i'm right? so fancy <laughs> and here's the thing we need more women like that i'm not bashing them i'm just saying that's a lot of pressure oh yeah so in one of my articles she it was said um Plina was first and foremost a product of the Acad- the academy representative of a new generation of university trained professional women with a strong commitment to feminist ideals in uruguay she grew up in a time where a lot of things were happening for women in 1879, when Paulina was four, Luisa Dominguez became the first woman to request an entrance exam for the University of the Republic. She passed with flying colors and provoked praise and ridicule from different politicians. Um, when she was seven, Jose Pedro Varela's Normal School for Girls opened. Um, and five, five years later is when they moved to Montevideo in Uruguay. Is, so there's is all this other stuff going on in, in women's rights, and she's growing up, you know, her parents are very proactive, and, you know, so she grew up in this culture where more things are happening for women. It's really volatile. Yeah. is A normal school is for teachers, right? It's a school for teachers? I'm not sure, to be honest. Cause I did our, not look into it. Our university started off as a normal school, and that was always my understanding. Hmm. I'm probably, have to look that up. Maybe I'm we'll, asking questions we'll, we'll that are not productive. Next, we'll, we'll put it in the blog. I'll look it up. I'm not being productive. I'm just asking random questions. Right? Thanks. Thank you. I'm putting you, you on the bad. spot. What do you mean you didn't look up what a normal school is? That's so important. Right? Um, so Paulina received her bachelor's degree in 1899 and was the first woman to do so. She then applied for medical school, which she, she got in, and she was the only woman in her class. And she became the first female physician and surgeon that graduated from the medical school of the Universidad de la República, which is now the University of Uruguay. Do you think that she had to pay more money to take classes by herself? I don't herself? know. It didn't, it didn't say anything about that. <laughs> Shout out to episode two in our medical mavens, the Edinburgh Seven. Right. That bullshit. Oh, my God. Um, so Dr. Christine Echrick, who, who is, um, she does a lot of studying of feminists and stuff like from the past she's an associate professor at the university of louisville says this quote draw paulina luisi which i don't know if draw is like a i tried to look it up but google just was like no dra stands for 
something else, like the Democratic Republic of something. Oh, oh, so I think draw, draw is an acronym. I yeah, was DRA like, period. No, so I'm wondering if that's maybe. No, I'm <laughs> wondering pen. if that's maybe like putting kind of like putting doctor. Yeah. Um. So the quote is: "Draw Paulina Luisi was a pioneering Uruguayan phys. Maybe she was a physicist. No, it says physician, but this says physicist. This quote is wrong." <laughs> Do you think do you think DRA is like female doctor cuz yeah, like doctora? Yeah, I suppose cuz they add the A to Am I making up language? No. No, <laughs> you're not. Okay, so we're we're going to change this quote cuz I'm sure it didn't mean physicist. So it was a pio- pioneering Uruguayan physician and feminist. Born in Argentina but raised in Uruguay, Paulina was the eldest child of European immigrants. After becoming the first woman in Uruguay to earn the equivalent of a bachelor's degree, Paulina became the first woman to enroll in complete medical school. This is a long quote, but I wanted to include all of it. As the first female medical student, Paulina faced a lot of harassments from her classmate. One day, Luisa found a severed human penis in the pocket of her lab coat. What the fuck? Luisi reportedly waited until after class was over when she held up the offending member and asked all of her male classmates, did one of you lose this? What the fuck? Oh my god. I love that she was like... Fuck you. Like, which one of you is the, like, prick that didn't have the balls, like... To come at me yourself. You had to leave... That's why I wanted the whole quote. A dismembered penis. That is fucking horrifying. Where did they get the penis? Well, I mean, they're they're in a medical school, so probably off of one of the cadavers. Okay, everyone, line up your cadavers. Which one is missing missing a penis? Which one is missing a penis? That guy's an asshole. (laughs) Oh, my fucking God. I can't believe she was so sassy about it. I would have vomited. Right. I'd be like, this is, this is like, I report this to poli- the police, they don't believe me, and then I get murdered. This is how this happens. <laughs> what the fuck? So, That's so fucking violent. I mean, yeah. I mean, not no, but yeah, kind of. I mean, you're dismembering, assuming they got the penis from the ca- I would assume, from a cadaver. But I love that she's like, so whose is this? Like, like which one of you dickless fuckers left this yeah, in my exactly. shit? <laughs> I love that. Oh, my God. No, that's incredible. I'm just really hung up on the severed penis. I know you are. (laughs) I'm like, really? That's why that quote needed to be in my story. I'm really concerned. Um, So not only was she a physician, but she also became a teacher and the primary editor of a magazine called Asion Feminina. And she held various positions throughout her career and achieved more than any woman in her country. So that's cool. The teacher part was really just like... Meh. I was like, going to say, after, super skipped over. After you talk about a severed penis, oh, by the way, she was also a teacher. Like, okay, cool. What about the severed penis? <laughs> We're done with the severed penis, Emily. Oh, my God. I don't think I'm ever going to be done with that. What the fuck? <laughs> no, that's so crazy. Am I, I, am I just overreacting? Like, maybe, if I maybe. found a severed penis in my bag, I would probably panic. I would freak the fuck out. And she's just like, so by the way, everyone holding it up. That's funny. Oh my god. I love her. Can yeah, can she be great. my new grandma? <laughs> so, Paulina's feminist ideas were primarily built upon other movements that were occurring around the time. So when she was still a student, Argentine li- liberal feminist Patrona Alil um wrote to her, to Paulina as the president of the Universitas Argentina, which is the Argentine Association of University Women. So that's pretty cool. And she recruited her to join this association. In a letter dated 1st of May, I'll c- encourage Luisi and her female colleagues. See, I'm using the last name because I forgot to transpose my notes this time. Well, it's it's in the quote. Yeah. You can't just be like, 
you know, That's brackets, true. Paulina on brackets, <laughs> continue. Um, so encouraged her and her female colleagues in the university to form a Uruguayan branch um, of this association, stating that although there aren't many of you now, you will always be the nucleus around which others will come together. So basically, these are like women's associations of women going to college. And she's like, hey, you know, you're the first women. Women are coming after you. You should start this branch in Uruguay. And we can be like partners in Uruguay and Argentina. Empowered women empower women. Exactly. Every fucking time. So it appears that Paulina and others, the other women that were now in this college, um, accepted the invitation and joined with their Argentine counterparts in 1907. Important to Paulina was the insertion into the Pan-American Liberal Feminist Networks and in her propulsion to the leadership of the still-germinating Uruguayan liberal feminism. Um, So what vaulted her into that was her participation in the Women's Congress, held in 1910 in Buenos Aires. There she became acquainted with prominent Argentine feminists, such as Alicia Moreau de Justo and Cecilia Gerson. Special yeah. props if you know who those are, because I've never heard of those women. So this was or- this um, conference, this Women's Congress, was organized by the universities, and it brought together more than 200 women representing Argentina, Uruguay, Peru, Paraguay, and Chile. So like most of the South American countries. That's incredible. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. I mean, they called it a, wor- a women's co- so the women's congress. So that's you know like they're like no, let's get all these branches of these university women together and like network. Well, and we need to support our whole continent exactly, and make sure everyone in our neighboring countries, all of those women, have the support and the opportunities to follow in our footsteps. Because right. it shouldn't be this hard. No, and it seems likely that at this conference is when Paulini or Paulina, sorry, (laughs) combining first name and last name. We're getting Italian Um, here. First came into contact with many leaders or the soon-to-be leaders of the liberal feminism movement, which was also happening in South America at the time. And this is where she would also establish her contacts and friendships that would endure, you know, for decades to come as these women struggled together for their separate countries. I love how organized they are. So in our last episode, we were talking about how Elizabeth Jennings Graham's mother was a part of an association that basically was helping to empower the black community through, you know, education and community activity and how important it was to strengthen your own community to stand up against this racial or patriarchal or whatever bullshit. And I love that that's what's happening on such a massive scale because they're going right. from country to country getting together and being like, hey, we've broken down these barriers. Let's make it easier for every single woman after us to do right. this. Like, where let's it's let's not... get together. Let's, you know, be a force to contend with. Exactly. That's yeah. incredible. I love that. Yeah. And then so Paulina, after that, started taking trips to Europe, you know, to kind of see how their feminist movement was going. Um, and that brought her into contact um, with women such as Avril St. Croix, who's the president of the Morale Unity Committee of International on the International Council of Women, and Jules Siegfried, the president of the French National Council of Women. So, you know, she went to all these other countries. She made all these contacts with women in power in, you know, in their feminist circles to see what, you know, how that could help. So in 1916, Paulina finally founded and led the Uruguayan branch of the National Women's Council. So she, you know, made her own council, which is good. And then in late 1932, Uruguay became only the second Latin American country to grant women the full voting rights. So, you know, all her stuff was not in vain. Like, they accomplished something. It took 
16 years, but they did it. Progress is slow, but inevitable. Yep. Um, Painfully slow, but inevitable. Inevitable. Um, At the time that the full voting rights were granted, Paulina was in Europe serving as a diplomatic representative, but she resigned to return to Uruguay to fight totalitarianism at home and abroad. You know, guys, everything in Europe is really cool, but I'm going to go fight totalitarianism back home. So catch you guys on the flip side. Right. So a quote that she published about the definition of feminism in her magazine, Action Feminina, says, quote, demonstrating that women... Woman is something more than material created to serve and obey man like a slave. That she is more than a machine to produce children and care for the home. That women have feelings and intellect. That their mission to perpetuate the species, and this must be done with more than the entrails on the breast. It must be done with the mind and a heart prepared to be a mother and an educator. That she must be a man's partner and counselor, not his slave. You know, that's such a powerful quote, but at the same time I'm like, duh? Like, right? why do we need to say this? But especially, I mean, that was 1917, so... Okay. <laughs> this is true. I, I mean, I, I love feel that. like there's still people today that, like, would read this, you know, and be like, oh, yeah, like, that should be a thing. More than the entrails and the breasts. Oh, I love that. I love that. That's so vivid. Just like that cadaver was more than a severed <sighs> penis. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. I can't let it go. All right. So some of her achievements and involvement. So I was wrong. They do come back to the teaching. I guess I just stuck it in another section. You know what? Everything after severed penis is just kind of like, wait, okay, <laughs> Emily just wasn't paying attention after that. <laughs> I was not. Um, so, so her achievements and involvements include um, she worked as a teacher at the Teachers Training College for Women. So she worked as a teacher teaching other women to be teachers. She was a teacher teaching teachers to teach. Yeah. Say that five times fast. Right. Um, and she was an advocate reaching out for social, social hygiene related to the teaching profession. Her what? lectures and arguments were specifically designed to, intro, to introduce prophylaxis as a subject within the teaching training syllabus. Social hygiene. Yep. What is... What is social hygiene? Is that just like washing your hands? I think so. Oh, okay. I mean, I guess this is the early 1900s. Maybe it's like washing your hands is optional. Prophylaxis is preventative medicine. Oh, so I think it's you know stuff to do with that. And okay, then it goes on to say um, a controversial aspect of Paulina's moral reform platform was obligatory sex health education programs in the public school system. Um, and she suggested having these programs first introduced in primary school and then continuing on to the secondary level. She defined sex education as the pedagogic tool to teach the individual to subject sexual drives to the will of an instructed, conscientious, and responsible intellect. So she was an advocate for sex ed. Yeah. she And she's like, let's teach these people to, like, instead of just have these, you know, needs, which we know everyone's going to have, let's teach them to understand it and be like... No, I'm in control of this. Well, and to be responsible about exactly. it, too. I mean, I, I, I'm 28. I still have questions. I still don't know how my fucking body works. I wish I'd pay more attention to sex ed, but sex ed was a given. I got it in middle school and high school, and that was not always the case. And I think it's easy for us to forget that, that we no one gets to learn. Not everyone gets to learn how to put a banana on a condom. No, a condom on a banana. <laughs> 
I'm so sorry. I mean, really, it works either way. I mean, it's easier to put the banana on the condom, but it's yeah. less of it's less useful, right? So it also says classes in sex education would emphasize the need for willpower and self discipline, regular moderate exercise to burn up sexual energy, and the desirability of avoiding sexually stimulating entertainments. So it was kind of about a little bit of everything. Avoiding getting horny. Like controlling like your help, sexual desert, yeah, it desires. Yeah, like helping with it. Oh, so, you know, seeing a woman's ankles wouldn't spur you to rape them. Right. Okay, cool. Um, and, and as opposed to sex education, health education classes would then more focus on the scientific aspects of reproduction. You know, such as the, you know, how species reproduce, natural history, anatomy, personal hygiene, and the prevention of venereal diseases. So she very much wanted to separate the two and be like, no, we should have sex ed classes and we should have health classes. One should be scientifically based and the other one should be like, hey, we know you're having these urges. Let's teach you to deal with them. I actually really love that. I know. Because, like, I I remember diagramming, diagramming. Diagramming the female anatomy. I, really want I to also know what remember diagramming is. It's it's you just grab the diagram and grope it, and it's really uncomfortable. Oh, okay, yeah, uh, it's it's a really unhealthy way to deal with your sexual urges. No, <laughs> but um, I remember like writing out the different parts of yeah. like the female anatomy, the male anatomy. But then I felt like a lot of my sexual education was lacking the practical parts, like. Hey, tell me about my period. And, like, don't just tell me why it happens, but, like, how to deal with it. it. Like, yeah, like. Or, like, you know, I I actually had a a health teacher, and she was really cool, and she was pretty uh, blunt and, you know, forthcoming with things. And I remember one time she said, hey, guys, if you wake up with a boner, that's called morning wood, and it's totally normal. Right. Don't worry about it. It doesn't See, and I, mean you're and a I deviant. Do think, yeah, I think that's a thing that needs to be expressed, that it's like, these things happen. People have these urges. It's natural. Here's some ways to deal with it. Yeah. Or sometimes, hey, man, if you get a random Woody, that doesn't mean you want to fuck that person or that light pole or wherever the fuck you were looking at. <laughs> it's th- okay. <laughs> you're 13. Your hormones are going crazy. You're fine. Yeah. Your dick's just doing whatever the hell it wants, but you are in control. <laughs> <laughs> um. So due to these suggestions, Paulina was called an anarchist and a revolutionary by by differing schools of thought. Um, She was also accused of wanting to teach students how to become prostitutes. Because knowing (laughs) how your sexual anatomy works and understanding that sexual urges are normal is exactly how you get into sex work. However, there's nothing wrong with sex work. No. But this isn't like... In, what? <laughs> on an up note, um, in 1944, her suggestions about sex health education were finally incorporated into the Uruguayan public school system. Woo woo. So that's pretty awesome. You go, girl. I need to scroll down. Kelly's working on a laptop tonight. I'm so excited. I usually use my phone and I'm like, it's like two inches from my face. And I'm like, so <laughs> let me let me just scroll with my thumb here and squint a lot. Right. Paulina is also known for writing several papers addressed to students as well as the general public. These were included in magazines, brochures, and even Congress's acts. These articles dealt with prophylaxis of contagious diseases, which we kind of touched on, hygiene and human growth, eugenics, open-air schools, improvement of hereditary qualities, social diseases, white slave trade and regulations, a social disgrace, 
regulations on prostitution, fight against venereal diseases, women and mothers' rights. And her articles even went so far as to reach um, America. And because many of them dealt with um, issues involving women's liberation. So, like, a lot of those papers ended up coming here eventually, I'm assuming, translated. Nice. Although I will say a lot of the research on her, one, the ones I ended up using, a lot of it were, like, scholarly articles. So super dense. Yeah, which was fun. And there was only a few of them because all the rest of them were in Spanish. And I don't trust Google Translate well enough to translate, like, a full document like that. Right. No one should trust Google no. Translate. Google Translate Like, maybe if you're translating, like, a sentence. Yeah. But I'm like, uh, I don't want to, like... So I'm kind of picking and choosing. So I'm sure there's a lot more about her out there, but it's in Spanish and I can't read it. Hey, if you know Spanish and you want to educate us, please email us at whiningabouthistory at gmail.com. a really dense, like, book? That'd be cool. So... She was fondly appreciative toward poetry and drama. She founded the Consejo Nacional de Mueres, which is the National Women's Council, like we talked about. She also formed the Alianza de Mueres para los Derechos Femeninos. Which I is the- <laughs> gotta say, you are tackling the Spanish like a fucking boss, and I appreciate it's been you. Years, um, which is the Women's Alliance for Women's Rights. And the Uruguayan and Argentinian branches of the International Abolition Federation. So she she also branched into abolition, which is kind of cool. The two first feminine trade unions that ever existed in Uruguay, the Union de Telefonistas, which is the telephone operators union, and the Costueras de Sasterias, which is the seamstresses from tailor shops, um, were created by Paulina. So she created some unions, um, and they ended up being a huge benefit for the members and like got them the more benefits they deserved right because when workers organize workers benefit versus the corporations right so then she was the secretary of the abolitionist committee on the river plate and she made a significant contribution to reform the depositions regulating prostitution in buenos aires she not only organized and chaired the university women association but in her later years although she retired from active life she kept conscious of an attentive in social developments. And at 65 years of age, Paulina died in Montevideo. Aww. The Medicine School of Montevideo named one of the library pavilions of the faculty after her. I mean, they fucking better have. <laughs> and it was also said, there's, I have two quotes, basically. They're both by, actually, I don't know who the first one's by. But the first quote is, quote, when Uruguayan women won the right to vote, a congratulato- congratulatory message issued via Radio Madrid was one of Paulina's first forays into the transformative, transformative medium of radio. The earliest surviving Paulina radio script we have from Uruguay, in fact, was delivered on Radio Femenina in 1936. By the early 1940s, Paulina had become the female voice of the Socialist Party, and using the on-air name abuela which means grandmother oh my god she is my new grandma (laughs) had developed something of a following among uruguayan listeners she was the female voice in an otherwise patriarchal soundscape of medicine politics and radio a voice that in both medium and message spoke in favor of women's legal and political rights and in favor of the women's right to speak so although apparently none of the rest of this mentioned um her radio career it sounds like she had a pretty good radio career of talking to women on a feminine radio station 
You know what's crazy about all of this is like, okay, so she's a doctor and she obviously addresses um, health issues, right? But she's helping the seamstresses and the did you say the telegraphers? Yeah, yeah. Te- well, tele- like, it said te- telecommunications. Okay, the yeah. telecommunic the women in telecommunications. Well, and she's- prostitutes and sex workers. Yeah, yep. it said prostitutes. Okay, the quote said prostitutes. <laughs> we say sex workers. Um. So the last quote I have was written by. S. Yunsian Levrin, and he's writing about Paulina, and it says, quote, Luisi's professional career is almost a stereotype of the intense and passionate ac- activity that developed within the first professional generation in Latin America. So they're saying, like, this passion and drive that she had was, you know. Instrumental. Instrumental in this next generation of professional people in Latin America. You know what? I mean, this is all just incredible. She had such a wide range. Like, she's like, I want to support all women in all areas. She put in the work. She made it easier for every single person after her. And, like, we still need this. We still need people like this who are making it easier for the next generation. So my my closing statement was she, she exemplifies like no other Uruguayan woman the complex relationships between education and professionalism, party politics, the state, and feminism in the Ballista era, which that was just that era of time in Uruguay. Okay. That's it. That's really beautiful. Okay. Well, I mean, super cheers to Paulina. Because right. she was a fucking rock star who got shit done. Yeah. And in so many different ways, too. All right. Now it is my turn. And I'm really anxious about this. Because this research was a lot more complex than I thought it would be. Um, That's why you were supposed to relax. Why I did mine? Drink your wine. Get all loose. Yeah, no, and I'm I'm definitely loose. Not more <laughs> confident though. Oddly <laughs> enough. <laughs> so, um, just really quick, the way I was going to do this story changed like eighty times during my research. Sounds about right. So, what I am covering today are. The Onabugeisha, which are Japanese female warriors. And originally, I was like, oh, I'll just like cover the tradition and the training and just what it means to be an Onabugeisha. But that is not the kind of resources I found. It was more like, oh, well, this is a famous Onabugeisha. This is a famous Onabugeisha. Oh, by the way, we don't know if she actually fucking existed. I think it's interesting that they're still called geishas. Like, because when I think of a geisha what bugeisha oh it's one it's word. one word yeah so, so o- oni and then bugeisha ona hyphen bugeisha oh, so i'm assuming geisha means it, it's a feminine term yeah it must be yep so what i did was i did a very brief overview and then i highlighted three famous ona bugeisha some of them legendary last one definitely fucking existed though (laughs) two two or maybes one is like yeah she existed yeah okay i'm I'm ready for this there's my strap in and strap on strap in strap on it's gonna get crazy also a lot of japanese pronunciations i am doing my fucking best here guys i really am that should just be like the disclaimer of our our show that's that's our tagline please please excuse our pronunciation our tagline is whining about herstory. We're doing our best, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pronunciations. We do our best, you guys. Pronunciations are hard. 
I was like super in anime and stuff though growing up, so I'm a little more comfortable with Japanese pronunciations than I am you French. Got this. I got this. I'm just I'm channeling the energy of all the powerful women that came before me into yes. these pronunciations. Do it. Okay. So the Onabugeisha. Most of us are familiar with samurai, the fierce military nobility of medieval early modern Japan. However, the lesser-known Onabugeisha, or women warriors, were just as, if not more, fierce than the samurai they fought alongside or against. Dun, dun, dun. The scene has been set. Tension is built. Let's get into it. So, the first Onabugeisha I'm going to be covering is Empress Jinju. Ooh, Empress. Yes. No, she fucking rocked it. If she existed. I think she did exist. <laughs> I know, I just had But to her actions are legendary. Mentions of the Onabugeisha can be traced all the way back to 200 AD. Legend says that following the death of her husband, Emperor Chuai, the pregnant, pregnant Empress Jinju took the throne, dressed as a man, and led a successful invasion of modern-day Korea, so where she ruled. It makes me think that people were just like, man, that's a really fat dude. And then eventually she had the kid, and they are like, wow, that dude lost all of the weight. <laughs> <laughs> wow, man, you're fighting pretty fast for having a beer belly that right? big. <laughs> Here's the thing. A pregnant woman, like, going to the store is a fucking act of heroism. I know. Be- ruling a country and fighting a war, that's... And so you're saying she actually fought, too? So she led the invasion of modern day Korea. So yeah, yeah, she yeah was back a then like those people got on their horses and like actually took their army to war. It wasn't it wasn't, oh, go fight this war for me. It was like, no, we're fighting this war. We are fighting this war. Well, and it used to be that, you know, there was no faith of your soldiers if you weren't out there with them. Exactly. If you didn't it's, believe enough in the mission to be out there with them. It's why would I sacrifice my life? If you're not willing to sacrifice your life. Right. So uh, legend says she ruled in modern day Korea for 70 years until she was 100 years old hmm. and still pregnant. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Oh, God, I mean, it's a legend. I can probably say whatever the fuck I want. <laughs> While this is only a legend, women did learn to use weapons such as naginata, which was like a pole arm with a curved blade at the oh, tip. Yeah. Yep. Um, kaiken or a dagger, and fight using the art of tanto jutsu, the traditional Japanese knife fighting. That's cool. This was important so women could help protect their communities, especially if there was a lack of male warriors. Yeah, if all the men went off to war, the women could actually protect the villages. Exactly. So it's like, hey, we all gotta. Yeah. Shit goes down, we all got to be ready to fight. Exactly. All right? Ride or die. <laughs> uh, Onabugeisha were part of a noble class of feudal Japanese warriors who, in some cases, even served as stewards of newly conquered lands. Hmm. They typically fought defensively, protecting their people and their land. Okay. So, it's so they like, weren't super offensive like the samurai sometimes were, or the ninjas. Right. They're not necessarily, like, going off to war. But I mean, that like, doesn't make them any less badass. They're like, hey, if you step to me, I'm going to stab you <laughs> with my knife and my naginata. All right? <laughs> Fuck you. All right. Uh, Empress Jinju's legacy. 
Though Jinju's legendary invasion of Korea can't be verified, she was honored as the first woman featured on a Japanese banknote. That's awesome. Yes. It was only the one yen banknote, but I like to think that's because she was number one. So if anyone has one of those, send us a picture. I want to see this. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm I mean, sure you Google it, but... We'll put a picture on the blog, but... If I can I find mean, one. <laughs> dude, just email us pictures of your japanese banknotes just like we want to see your feminist stamp collections oh my god seriously we haven't gotten a feminist stamp collection yet and i'm like do i need to start I my know, own i was thinking i was like <laughs> does this does this need to be like our our side thing the feminist stamp collection this is our this is our side hustle side hustle <laughs> <laughs> all right uh the next onabu geisha i'm going to cover is tomoe gozen uh, who lived from 1157 to 1247. Almost 100 years. Fuck, you're right. I mean, again. 90 years. <laughs> I can All math. Right. So another legendary Onabugeisha, Tomoe Gozen, was immortalized in The Tale of Haiki, an epic that commemorated the stories of samurai during the, Gen- the, Genpe- the Genpei War. I'm trying. Hey, I think you're doing really well. Uh, This was a war between two very powerful clans. There was a lot of information about this, but I didn't get too deep into it because this already got a little long. So that's all you need to know. (laughs) Uh, In the epic, Tomoe was the wife of General Minamoto no Yoshinaka, who fought during the Battle of Awazu on February 21st, 1184. 870 years apart from my birthday. She's real excited about that. I'm really excited. She's like dancing over there. This is like the third story that has had my birthday in it, and I'm not doing this on purpose. <laughs> I swear to Christ, I'm She's not. lying, guys. I just Google women with February 21st, yeah. and then I get a I get a whole list of women. Yeah, that's the list you're working off of. Yep. You say it's from your mom, but really it's just based off your birthday. This one actually isn't from my mom. This one I picked on my own because I saw an article about the Onabu Geisha oh, that was cool. very helpful. And I will put that on our Facebook page because okay. it was really cool. This one was me, though. Not my mom this time. Mm-hmm. In the epic, Tomoe is described as beautiful... Typical, but also as, quote, a remarkably strong archer. And as a swordsman, she was a warrior with a thousand, ready to confront a demon or a god, mounted or on foot. She handled unbroken horses with superb skill. She rode unscathed down perilous descents. Whenever a battle was imminent, Yoshinaka sent her out as his first captain, equipped with strong armor, an oversized sword, and a mighty bow. And she performed more deeds of valor than any of his other warriors. So she is like... I like that he's like, I trust you, wife. Go fuck shit up. Yeah. No, for sure. During the battle, Tomoe took the head of at least one enemy and killed a famous samurai who's literally known for being killed by her. Oh, nice. Oh, look at this famous samurai who was killed by Tomoe. We don't... I. That's it. That's all you need to know. I didn't include his name because I didn't care. Unfortunately, their army was overpowered and Yoshinaka told Tomoe to flee because he would have been ashamed to die with a woman. The guy. Wow. I was like so proud of her husband for being like, you know, like he sent, obviously he was very proud of her and was like, go fuck shit up. You're really good at this. But then to be like, hey, 
I can't die with you. You should leave. I mean, she apparently lived for many years after this, at least. So that's, but, that's when you just right. stab him yourself and go, fine. <laughs> <laughs> you don't put away your underwear and now you won't let me die with you. What the fuck? My mother was right. I should have married the other general. Yeah, right. God damn it. Uh, I also found a three-minute YouTube clip from a show called Ancient Assassins that depicts her defeating a samurai during the battle and shaming the hell out of him and his clan for being a woman. Nice. Because with, with the samurai, it was all about honor and, like, death oh, was a way of life. And, I mean, that's probably, like, there. I'm sure it was somewhere in, like, their samurai code. And her, I'm sure her husband was a samurai. And that's probably why he was like, no, I can't. Like, I can't die with you here because that's shameful. Right. So because I'm sure it was like, I need to protect. I'm sure maybe it wasn't so much as you're a woman as or maybe it was because they were huge into chivalry, weren't they? So maybe it was like, I'm supposed to protect you. So you dying here with me is shame because I didn't protect you. But I'm totally going to send you out to fight for me. Yeah. I recognize your skill. But when shit gets real, you just. Go away. I'm going to die here. You just keep living. Go die elsewhere. Go die elsewhere. (laughs) But I will, I'll add this YouTube clip, but it was really interesting because it depicted basically that these battles started with two samurai who kind of, they show off their skills. They say, here's who I am. Here's the clan I'm from. Here are all the people I killed. Here's the head, like the literal head of the last dude I killed. Yep. Let's fight. And she kills this dude. And as he's dying, she's like, by the way, I'm a chick. And he's like, no, my honor. So <laughs> there's actually a group of women that I'm planning on covering possibly in the next episode that they were fighters. And the way they, not to give it away, but the way they killed people, like, because people didn't know they were women, is they, sorry, <laughs> they'd kill someone and then they'd show them their boobs as they were dying to be like, oh, bitch, you just got killed by a woman. You know what? I love that because the fact that that would bother someone is bullshit. And so just rubbing it in their face like, your misogynistic ideals of strength are bullshit and I just killed you. Yeah. So that'll be a fun one to cover. That's amazing. It's another like group of women like yours. Another interesting thing about Tomoe is that she was known as an Onamusha as she engaged in offensive battle rather than the traditional defensive fighting that was common for Onabugeisha. So was she considered both or mainly the other one? I think, so I think overall she was an Onabugeisha, but she like went out. Okay. You know, it wasn't like, it wasn't like, it was just like a different classification for a female warrior. So it's like, instead of people coming to her and trying to invade her shit, she was like, I'm coming to you, bitch. Coming to you. Tomoe's legacy, though it's not confirmed whether Tomoe was a real person or a legend, accounts of her ferocity in battle significantly impacted the warrior class, and she has been remembered through art, plays, and even into modern pop culture. Anyone who is a fan of the Persona 4 video game will recognize Tomoe as the inspiration for one of the characters' personas. There were some other modern references, but I was like, oh, this is like anime and video games. I'm going to include this one, <laughs> even though I've I never played them. them. I haven't either, but I know that I've heard they're very good. Yep. All right. We are on to Onabugeisha number three. And the one that I can confirm fucking existed. <laughs> All right. Nakano Takeko, who lived from April 1847 to October 16th, 1868. 
Now, we're going to sashay away in history to the late Edo period, which lasted from 1603 to 1868. In 1847, Nakano Takeko was born in Edo, which is modern-day Tokyo, which was the center of power and prosperity at the time. Nakano was trained in martial arts and literature from an early age. She was especially intelligent and was able to read perfectly the Hyakunin Ishu, a classical anthology of 100 poems from 100 poets. Wow. So 100 poets submit a poem each. And she was able to, the record, the the notes I used said um, recall. So I was like, okay, did she memorize it or could she read it? Maybe she had like a photographic memory. Maybe. But anyway, she was able to basically read, understand, recite this perfectly when she was five or six years old. Wow. When... I was like, why should I have to tie my shoes? (laughs) No. No, mom. No. But when I ask for someone to tie my shoes, they tie my shoes. Why would I do it myself? Right. We're in the sassy phase. Oh, yeah. No, it's like, what do you mean I have to be an empowered, independent woman when I can just make people around me do what I want? Right. Her father, Nakano Henai, was an Aizu government official. Aizu was the westernmost of the three regions that make up the current-day Fukushima prefecture in Japan. At the time, Aizu was a feudal domain and known for its military skill. At any given time, Aizu had a standing army of over 5,000, which were routinely deployed for security operations. Wow. So they're just like, we're packed, we're stacked, we're getting it done. Yeah, that was their... Like, military province, basically. Exactly. Nakano trained as a martial artist with her father until 1868 when she finally entered Aizu for the first time. So, I couldn't find more information on this, but what I'm understanding is that he was a government official in Aizu. She was born in modern-day Tokyo and, like, trained... He He must have traveled there or something. Yeah, so she didn't actually come to Aizu until 1868. Okay. Now, there was a lot of a lot of political information that I tried to get into, but it became too cluttered, and this story was already running long. So I'm going to severely summarize this next part. Do it. So, long story short, the ruler of Aizu, Matsudaira Katamori, swung his military might around a bit too far and pissed off the imperial government, who catarized Katamori, the ruler. Uh, and and Aizu as enemies of the court. Though Katamori tried to show his and his domain submission to the imperial court, tensions between the ruling shogunate, or feudal military government, and the imperial court erupted into the Boshin War, also known as the Japanese Revolution. Uh, When this happened, Katamori joined to fight against the imperial court in 1868, so the same year Nakano entered Aizu. So to summarize... The the new imperial government was taking power away from the currently ruling shogunate, who were like a military yep. dictator deal. Though Aizu originally fought as part of a greater effort against the imperial court, they were eventually abandoned but continued to fight alone. I mean, they were the military area, so. I mean, yeah. If anyone, if anyone has anyone, a chance. <laughs> if anyone has a chance to fight alone, it's these guys. So this brings us to the Battle of Aizu. In October of 1868, the seat of Aizu's power, 
Suruga Castle, or present-day Wakamatsu Castle, was attacked by 30,000 Imperial troops, beginning a month-long siege that would become known as the Battle of Aizu. Aizu had about 3,000 warriors to defend themselves with. Where the fuck were the rest of them? What happened to their 5,000 standing army? I mean, they this had been they were fighting. probably out fighting other battles. Well, yeah. and they had been fighting up until this point. And I'm like, I could totally believe that 2,000 of your dudes died right. fighting. That's true. Though many women served behind the scenes during the battle by bandaging injured soldiers, cooking, and extinguishing cannonballs, which were raining down upon them daily, Nakano fought, wielding a naginata. She also led a ragtag corps of 20 to 30 female combatants, later called the Joshigun, or Women's Army. They fought independently during the battle. They did not fight as part of the larger army because the senior military leaders would not allow them to be an official part of the army. So basically, the primary male warriors are fighting this battle. They're defending their territory. And Nakano's like, "Uh, we're going to do our shit too. So we're going to help. Round up, ladies. We're getting shit done. During the battle, it is said that Nakano killed 172 samurai. Nice. She is getting shit done with that Naginata. While leading the charge against the enemy army, Nakano was fatally shot. Oh, wait. I suppose. Yeah. I was like, wait, shot? (laughs) Yeah, they they had guns. They had guns. Yeah, that's probably why they won. (laughs) To prevent the enemy from capturing her head as a trophy, Nakano asked her sister to cut it off and bury it in the Hokai temple under a pine tree. I've actually read at least this part of a story about this woman. Oh, really? Because, yeah, I'm like, wait, the whole sister thing. That sounds super familiar. I mean, it's probably bled into pop culture and stuff. No, like it was, I I think when I was looking for who I wanted to do, this woman may have come up. I love that. Anyways, continue. Anyway. um, So, I mean, that's it. She died during the battle. She fought very valiantly. Uh, Unfortunately for them... Aizu lost and was conquered and the imperial court took over everything. But her sister did take her head. Her sister did take her head and bury it under the pine tree. So uh, Nakano's legacy, a monument and a statue of Nakano were later erected at the Hokai Temple, which we should definitely add to our feminist trip list. Okay. I've got a running list. So there's Sybil Luddington. I didn't know we had a list. I'm I'm excited now. (laughs) We have a list. We have Sybil Luddington's statue yep. and the trail. The, like, the trail. We're not going to do the race, but we'll walk it. Yes, we will. We'll take a gentle stroll through the leaves. Maybe we'll do horseback. Oh my like god! She did. God, I'd be so sore after that. I know that would wreck me. I mean, we wouldn't like do it in like one night. Just take it easy. We're gonna take a week to ride horses on this one trail because. <laughs> We don't want to wreck our bodies. Yeah, exactly. We are weak and broken. Uh, so we've got that. Um, I mean, we've got some grave sites that we can actually identify. Yeah, that'd be sweet. And now we have this. Yeah. So cool. yeah. Also, during the annual Aizu Autumn Festival, girls dressed as warriors march in a procession to commemorate Nakano and the oh, women's army she led. That's awesome. Which is just beautiful. I like that they're keeping that legacy alive. Yes. Yeah. I mean, she's. I think she's a big deal in Aizu. Maybe not necessarily outside. Yeah. But I mean, you see so much that like some of these women get covered up even by their own cultures. Exactly. You know, so to see a culture really celebrating the woman is is great. Well, and it's cool because they wear like, um, I are you familiar with, I'm going to refer to anime. Are you familiar with Inuyasha? Yes. So the, the outfits that um, 
kikyo like the priestess wears yeah, yeah. so it's like the white kimono on top and then the i think it's the hakama yeah like the yeah i know you're flared pants so they wear that and like headbands special Honestly, headbands it looks like it'd be March. super comfortable i mean man i would be killing a lot of people in that outfit right, there's so move. much range of motion <laughs> i wonder if they had pockets oh my god they fucking better have <laughs> where are you gonna put all your knives <laughs> throwing knives just <laughs> all right so I have a section called takeaway. Of course. Yes. I, I try to label I things. I need to like step my shit up over here. I try to label things because I've realized that if I don't actually put it in my notes and I'm just like, oh, I'll remember to say that. Yeah, I, I fucking don't. So the takeaway. While throughout much of Japanese history, women were expected to be obedient and commit to a life of domesticity, the Onubu Geisha stood out as fierce warriors who fought for their communities. And while committing your life to domesticity is a valid choice, when it's not a choice, it's a problem. You're not just your entrails and your boobs. You're not just your entrails and your boobs. You are so much more to that. And if you <laughs> that need might to hear be my that today, quote. if you need to hear that today, here it is. You're more than your entrails and boobs. Yes, you are. And we love you. And welcome. Entrails, boobs, and everything in between. (laughs) I double-checked Femi. Like, I looked it up. Because, of course, it's spelled the same as, like, Femme Fatale, and I'm pretty sure it is pronounced Femme, but we're just saying the E because it sounds better. We're taking over language. And while there is kind of a more modern version of it, well, it's the same word, um, in the LGBTQ community, QR What's the last one? LGBTQIA letter? is as far as I usually I'm get. I'm sorry. I apologize. I'm not trying to be offensive. I just legitimately don't remember. Well, and everyone says it a little bit differently. Yeah. But again, LGBTQIA is usually as far as I get in the acronym. I think that's probably but good. It's, it's representative of a wide range of sexual orientations yes. and gender identities. Um, and we love you all. So, But when we say FEMI, we just mean the original term which means female we're just saying welcome to our female family i'm just i'm just i'm trying to say we're not excluding anyone men can be part of our femi family as well yeah we're just trying to celebrate the incredible women that have been erased or forgotten by history and i'm actually really glad you brought this up because i've been hesitant to use femi family in our like social media and stuff because i'm like well i understand to be femme doesn't necessarily mean your sex or your gender. Exactly. It, can be it the just, way you present. It, it, it can means be... it just means in femme in French. I literally just looked this up and I can't remember what language it is. It's like French or German or you know one of the majors major languages. Um, but yeah, it it literally means woman. So we're not trying to use it like in any other context than woman. Welcome to our family that is celebrating female excellence. Yes, there you we go. We love you. <laughs> we'll come up with our own word later. We'll and let you know. female, when we say female, we mean woman. And so if you identify as a woman, you are a part of our family and we love you. Even if you identify as a man. If you're, you're a welcome. dude, you are a part of our family and we love you unless you're a misogynistic piece of shit, in which case change yourself or fuck off. <laughs> You're excluded from the family. We're actually very open and accepting, unless you're a piece of shit. And then in which yeah. case we're like, well, I mean, no, we're not all about <laughs> <No>. that. <laughs> Take like 10 steps back and just fix yourself. Stay over there. <laughs> fix yourself. So that's all I have about the Onobu Geisha. And like I said, there was a lot of information. There was a lot of stuff I left out. It was kind of difficult to cover this topic. But definitely look more into these women because all three of them were fucking 
certified whining about herstory stamp of approval badasses whether they were real or not heck yeah they're they're real now they they have our stamp of realness just like sybil luddington does because we are in control of that yeah we are this we is are our podcast herstory motherfuckers Fuck yeah Woohoo! anyway <laughs> it's the wine version of herstory yes yeah we take our whining very seriously yes we do so no don't say it <laughs> I know what's coming. <laughs> we have our thankfulness corner where each of us say something that we're thankful about. This is particularly helpful on downer episodes. I think we're ending on Actually, kind yeah, of Yeah, I think this is a really good episode. Like, no, woo! we were both very uh, chipper and empowered, but I do have something that I'm very thankful for. So I will start off and then Kelly can. I don't like when you start because you're always sweat. like, yeah, I'll just stress sweat over here. <laughs> So what I'm really thankful for this week, two things. One, that I got through the week. It was another tough week, but I'm starting to feel a little stronger, a little better, you know, battered but not beaten. And then also our local blood bank. I know that's kind of a weird thing, but uh, the blood bank has been calling me for three years trying to get me to come in. And I, my anxiety doesn't allow me to make phone calls and yeah. appointments. Well, yeah, so, so I usually get the voicemail. And I'm just like, oh, I'll call back later. And, and I never, never fucking do. do. I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. But they finally got a hold of me in person. And I was like, okay, yes, let's do this. I'm going to make an appointment. I made it. I went in. The nurse who took my blood was actually someone I knew in high school. Oh, so we were funny. like swapping stories. Like, oh, how are you doing? And she's like fucking fabulous. You know, Mary right. has a couple of beautiful children. And I was like, oh, my I God. I just gave blood a few weeks ago. You're amazing. And they were like, you should give plasma because then you can give every eight days and then you can get a sweatshirt faster. Oh, yeah. Well, and something else they were telling me about was platelets. So platelets are the. Maybe it was platelets, not plasma. Yeah. It, I mean, it could have been. I. I don't it, know anything. I don't think I don't think the blood bank I go to does plasma. I just let them stick the needle in me and then I just well, sit platelets there. takes two hours yes. instead of one. Yeah. So it is platelets. But um basically platelets are what make your blood clot. Yep. And they use them for severe trauma cases, people That's why with you can hemophilia. Do it every eight days instead of every twelve weeks. Right. And so you know, if you've been putting off going to your local blood bank blood bank and donating blood or platelets or plasma or wherever the fuck you're comfortable donating go in don't wait for something bad to happen make sure they have that on hand a lot of times the uh, most blood banks at least in our area take walk-ins so even if you don't want to make that phone call just go in yeah pretty efficient they'll get you in in a timely manner they want your blood they want you guys they're like vampires except hopefully they're not drinking it that that's why, be, that's why there's a constantly a shortage of blood. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I'm I'm thankful that they're doing what they're doing. You know, they're putting in the time, the effort. They are really helping people. And I'm glad I finally fucking went in. And I'm hoping yeah. to... I, now I know when their late night appointments are. So I, I'm hoping to make it more of a regular thing. Yeah, my work gives me... Like, they give me an hour for regular blood. I think it's two for double and two for platelets so do you get paid for that time yeah oh my god i mean i, I work at a hospital so this is true so they're like go go donate your blood so kelly works at the hospital where i'm donating blood yeah. but because i don't work at that hospital i don't get paid so i'm going in like at 5 30 or but six i mean if, if we if we're over that time then yeah it you know then we're not paid so usually i just i 
take that and my like lunch and I just kind of combine it in case, you know, in case there's a long wait line or, you know, I just want to sit and enjoy my cookie afterwards. Oh my God. Those cookies are as big as your face. They're so, so good too. So the nurse, she led me back out to the waiting area and, you know, they've got like a whole cooler of soda. They've got chips and cookies and water, like fucking everything. And she's like, board. help yourself. And I'm like, don't tempt me because I, I will put that everything. whole basket of cookies into my purse. I it took so much self control. I I ate a bag of chips because I really hadn't eaten a lot that yeah. day, and I was like, I've still got to walk back to my car, I and always, it was like I always a, few take blocks. a chocolate chip cookie. And I took a snickerdoodle with me, nice. and I was like, there was a can of Pepsi staring me in the face, and I was like, Emily, don't be a fucking glutton. And when I when I did it, I I think I just went, I just took a bottle of water because I was I felt slightly dehydrated, so I was like, no, I'm gonna make the health conscious choice, and I'm just gonna take a bottle of water. I applaud your restraint, although I do still have that snickerdoodle in my purse. Ooh. I'm saving it for a special occasion, which might be right after this podcast <laughs> when I get home tonight. I'm gonna say after this podcast is popcorn. Yes. Oh my god, I'm so excited, Veronica Mars and popcorn. We have weird pastimes. Hey. But Anyone it, who's not on board with Veronica Mars and popcorn is not a friend of mine. She doesn't mean it. I mean, I might judge you. You'll have to win <laughs> my favor instead of automatically getting it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Kelly, what are no. you thankful for this week? <laughs> I was just hoping you'd forget about me here in my <laughs> corner. Um, I'm actually, I'm going to say I'm really thankful for my new laptop, which is not new at all. My husband just gave me his old laptop because they needed mine for some project they're doing and his laptop couldn't do it it wasn't the right hardware so he's like can we just take yours after they'd already started it so i'm like <laughs> like yeah but th- you know like hey we're way halfway to actually through. like ask before you did it we're halfway through like taking over your laptop is yeah, this right. okay and, and it was fine i had actually just recently like completely wiped it because it's real old and mm-hmm. it was running real slow so i took everything off of it and just completely redid it He's starting a competing history podcast where he just talks about strong, empowered men that we've all heard of. Yeah. And it would all be like computer-based men. So it'd be like Stephen Hawking's and Steve Jobs. <laughs> Episode one is just George Washington. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> have you guys ever heard of George Washington? Listen about this guy. He had this thing with some cherry trees. It's Cray. <laughs> oh, gotcha. He would never say Cray. I would pay to hear him he, he say He might cray. actually kick us out of the house now. <laughs> that was another one of our weird house rules. Like we weren't there was like three or four words you weren't allowed to say or you had to leave. Not that we ever actually kicked anyone out. I think it was it was cray, totes, if you didn't say magoats after. Yeah, if you say totes magoats, it's fine. Or cray cray. Yeah. 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 We're not we're not cray people. I mean, I mean we I are, but became. we just don't like the words. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, so I'm thankful for that because it's nice to like because then I can, like, sit upstairs and work on stuff versus having to be down here, which is, is fine. But sometimes I'm like, I just want to, like, be in my solitude. And he's always down here on his computer. So Well, that's like I finish up my notes at the local library because it's, it's hard to focus at home because there's a billion other, like, there's my bed that I'd love to be curled up in. There's the couch that I'd love to be sleeping on. There's the TV I'd love to, like, not watch while I'm dinking around on right. my phone. So being at the library was really nice. I could just sit down and focus on my notes. Right. And I'm gonna. I'm, my other thankful thing is going to be my grandma because she, like, checked in on me this week because it was supposed to snow. I mean, it's supposed to snow where they are, too, but it was really sweet. Like, she just texted me and was like, I had to bring all my plants inside. Here's my indoor garden. And she, like, sent me a picture, which I had to teach her to do a while ago. But it was cute. And then she was like, oh, I hope you get, you know... 
hope you endure the snow. And then, like, the day after it snowed, she texted me again and was like, oh, I hope you're doing fine. And Aww. it was just really sweet. That's – I love your grandma. She's I always know. been very sweet. So that was that was nice. It, you know, brightened my week. So That's awesome. Thanks, grandma, even though you're never going to listen to this podcast. But still. Shout out to all the grandmas. I have a new grandma. Yeah. So. Abuela. I have a new abuela. All right. So, yeah. Well, that's my thankful. I'm going to have to, like, start prepping these in advance. Yes. <laughs> like, as my as I go through my week, like, when I have an um, aha, like, this was awesome moment, I'm just going to start writing it down. Please do. I mean, that's actually a really good thing. That's, like, a therapy technique I did for a while where I would um, write down 10 things that yeah. made me happy during a day. I know. Coming up with 10 well, things like, having, really Having, hard, like, a thankfulness journal is, like, a thing. But I'm always, like... I never know what to put because I always feel like I'm just going to put the same thing. And that's what I worry about on this podcast because I'm like, it's always going to be like my husband, my oh, dogs, yeah. you know, like Emily. <laughs> like Eventually, I'm going to have to start like repeating myself and I feel weird doing that. So I have to start coming up with other things. I actually had um, my boyfriend listen to one of my thankfulness shout outs for him. And he just was like, like all happy. That's and cute. It was very sweet. So anyway... Please email us at whiningabouthistory at gmail.com. Tell us about the women you want us to cover. Tell us about the incredible women in your life that are probably not going to get their own wiki page. Yeah, because, I mean, we'll definitely, if we get, like, a few, you know, like, viewer women, like, if you guys are okay with it, we'll do a viewer episode of just modern-day women that are kicking ass. Like, they don't need to be the first woman who did something, but if you think they're badass... Let us know. We can give them a regular shout out. We can tell their story. Just, you know, we might let have us to know. do a special Mother's Day episode for me and Kelly's moms because I would love to give my mom a big shout out on this show. Yeah, and I'm sure great. you would, too. I love my mama. I love our mamas. Um, Drinks, um, <laughs> <laughs> you owe me wine. Um, I already gave you the wine. But um, check out our blog. I post or we post weekly um like synopses of our episodes um and there'll be profiles of women coming soon there's one up there now but i'm getting more coming and then hit us up on facebook at whining about herstory instagram at wah pod and just reach out to us we love you guys yeah we'd love to hear from you yeah and tell us if you have a woman who should be or a person who should be featured on our say their name segment yeah that's another way to get a good shout out yeah empowered women empowered women hell yeah they do so thank you so much for listening this has been whining about herstory i'm emily i'm kelly and have an empowered day bye bye